Good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. So today, this morning, we are in part three of our series on the Apostles' Creed. Um, I just want to remind everyone why we're going through the Apostles' Creed and what our aim is here. Our aim is to promote Christian unity at the communion table. Our goal is to welcome the Lord's people to the Lord's table and to discourage hypocrisy by fencing off the table from those who are not actually the Lord's people. Uh, We are also publicly setting boundaries for the church so that the church can remain steadfast in the truth, faithfully hand down the faith to the next generation of believers to help the pastors help the body to not stray away from the gospel and to assist the pastors with guarding the flock from false teachers and wolves. So please take a look at the handout that you have. You should see a copy of the Apostles' Creed. Last week, we covered the lines. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and descended to the dead. This morning, we will be looking at the lines. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, He will come again to judge the living and the dead. So just as a quick recap, last week we talked about how Jesus Christ, in his humanity, suffered for us, died for us, and descended to the dead. He was a real flesh and blood man, and it was necessary for him to be a man in order for him to suffer for us, in order for him to pay our sin debt, and to, and to defeat Satan on our behalf, in order for him to be our substitute, he had to be a man. And lastly, we heard how as a man, he died the way all men die. His spirit was separated from his body and he descended to the dead. So you just heard our sermon text that was read today, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 through 4. And also, we will be spending some time in the second half of the sermon in the 110th Psalm. So please, if you could, just mark your Bible because we'll be going over to the 110th Psalm as well. So let's go to the Lord and ask him to help us this morning. Father, the task that you have given me to do today is impossible apart from your Holy Spirit, O God. Lord, I'm just a man And I cannot do what you have called me to do without your help, God. So, Lord, I need you today. Help me to be faithful to your word, God, for your glory. Pray, God, that you would fill all of us with your spirit today, Lord, so that we would grow in our love for you, O God. So that those that don't know you, God, will see you as glorious and magnificent and bow to you as king, O Lord. Lord, help us by the aid of your spirit to do these things. Father, we need you today as ever, O Lord. Lord, I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart are acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are a rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. For Jesus Christ or any man, for that matter, to resurrect, they must first die. Amen, church? We saw that last week, that the man Christ Jesus died. But God, in his faithfulness to his promises, did not abandon him, nor did his flesh see corruption. He was, in fact, resurrected according to the scriptures. That's the first point you see in today's sermons. That's where we'll be spending most of our time is in that first point. Not only was he resurrected, but as we will see later, he also ascended to the right hand of the Father. That's point number two. And lastly, we'll see that he will return in glory and what all these things mean for us as believers, 
as unbelievers, and as the entire church. So if you're following along on the handout, point number one, the man Christ Jesus was resurrected. The man Christ Jesus was resurrected. If you have your Bibles open, please look again at 1 Corinthians chapter, or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 with me. Hear what your Lord says to you from the word of God. For I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. In this verse, the Apostle Paul not only affirms the necessity of Jesus' death for our sins, but also highlights the biblical basis for this essential truth. The scriptures declare with unwavering certainty that Jesus' death was not just necessary, but essential for our salvation. And through his sacrifice, we are granted both the forgiveness of sin and the freedom from Satan's power and grip over us. The record of debt that stood against us was canceled. It was set aside because of his death. Our enemy, the devil, was defeated because of his death. And we are adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God because Christ died. Amen? Amen. But then verse 4 goes on to say that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Both Jesus' death and resurrection are of first importance. In verse 3, when it says, I deliver to you what is of first importance, he's talking not just about his death, but also his resurrection. I want to draw your attention down to something crucial down in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Family, we have to ask this question. If Jesus, if Jesus' death granted forgiveness and freedom from Satan, why the resurrection? Why are we still in our sins if he is not resurrected? The answer is because of the nature of sin. The biblical understanding of sin reveals that sin has a that with sin we have a twofold problem involving a penalty that we cannot pay and a power that we could not conquer. And if you flesh this idea out further, we see that sin's penalty and sin's power are universal and multifaceted. In terms of sin's penalty, sin's penalty is universal. As Romans 6.23 makes clear, the wages of sin is death. And this penalty applies to every man. Why? Because every man dies. In terms of sin's power, sin's power is multifaceted. The Lord commands us in Romans chapter 6, verse 12, Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make, it to make you obey its passions. Why does the Lord give us this command? Because sin has the power to reign in your mortal body and to control your actions. The Lord also tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Why does the Lord tell us this? Because sin is not just a physical force or earthly force, but a spiritual one with diverse levels of power and influence over us. Further, the word of God warns us that desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You find that in James chapter 1, verse 15. James 1, 15. Why does the Lord tell us this? Because sin has a process starting with a desire or a temptation and leading to a full-grown state that results in death. Again, concerning sin, God explains to us in 1 John 2, 16, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. 
Why does the Lord explain this to us? You guys are asking really great questions today. (laughs) Because sin can manifest itself in different forms, such as lust, greed, or pride. And these different aspects of sin can be very powerful and very tempting. Sin's power is multifaceted. And yes, it is true that to some degree we have the power to fight sin and resist sin. But no man, no man can escape the ultimate power of sin, which is death. Even unbelievers, in a sense, in a sense, can resist sin because behavior modification is possible. Nevertheless, death is inevitable. No man can escape it. No man is immune to it. No one can outrun it. Death or sin's greatest warrior is death. And since the penalty of sin is death, and sin's greatest power is death, Christ must rise from the dead in order to conquer it. Family, listen to me. The necessary expression that sin's penalty is paid is the resurrection of the man Christ Jesus. If the man Christ Jesus does not rise from the dead, then the penalty of sin is still being paid and the payment has not been made in full. Further still, the necessary expression that sin's power is defeated is the resurrection of the man Christ Jesus. If the man Christ Jesus does not rise from the dead, then the power of sin was greater than him, and it still has power over him and us. If Christ Jesus is still in the grave and the tomb is not empty, then sin's power is greater than God's power. Boo. Whatever the opposite of amen is, say it right now. The only way to demonstrate that sin has been conquered once and for all is that the man Christ Jesus must rise from the dead. It is an absolute necessity. And he has. He is risen to the glory of God. Amen, church? Family, for God to send his warrior to defeat the greatest enemy of the people of God is not unprecedented. We've seen this before. Just as David defeated the Philistines' greatest enemy, the, great, the Philistines' greatest warrior, Goliath, the man Christ Jesus faced the greatest power of sin, which is death. Like Goliath, our enemy struck fear in the hearts of all those who face it, and like death, Goliath seemed invincible. But like David faced Goliath, the man Christ Jesus faced death with courage and the utmost faith in the Lord Yahweh. He willingly went to the cross, bearing our sin, taking our punishment that we deserved. And just like David's stone struck Goliath's head, Jesus' death crushed the head of the serpent. And Jesus' resurrection is the proof that he dealt a mortal blow to our last enemy, death. But David's victory over Goliath was temporary because the Philistines would continue to threaten Israel in the years to come. But Jesus' victory over death is abiding and everlasting. Through his death, Jesus paid sin's penalty conquered sin's power for all those who believe and the resurrection testifies to the truth that death is dead because our champion is victorious amen church family that's not all look with me at first corinthians again chapter 15 verses 12 go to verse 12 says this in verse 12 now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead but if there's no resurrection of the dead 
then not even Christ has raised, has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. Whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if you are following along with, Paul reason, with Paul's reasoning here, what he's doing is he's connecting Christ's resurrection and our resurrection together in such a way that they are not two separate realities, but a single reality. If Christ is not raised from the dead, we cannot be raised from the dead. And if we are not raised from the dead, then it is impossible that Christ could have been raised from the dead. In both cases, the entire Christian faith would collapse. The relationship between Jesus's historical bodily resurrection and our resurrection at the end of the world are bound together so inseparably that if one is not true, the other is not true. If you lose one, you lose the other and you lose Christianity. The resurrection is essential and vital to our faith. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you're not a Christian. Family, if you take sugar out of cake, that's a biscuit. Without the resurrection, you don't have Christianity. It's not Christianity. If you don't have a physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're not a believer. On the road to Damascus in Acts 9-4, when the resurrected Christ appeared to the apostle Paul, the Lord said this to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. We are united together with Christ's family, so much so that when we are persecuted, the Lord says he is persecuted. We were buried with him in his death. We were raised with him from the dead, and we were made alive together with him. That's Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. His resurrection is our resurrection. No resurrection, no salvation, no Christianity. Family, we cannot, should not, and must not minimize the implications of the resurrection of the man Christ Jesus. Because the man Christ Jesus was resurrected and validates that our sins are forgiven, our faith is no longer subject to the whims of our feelings. The proof that your sins are forgiven does not lie within you. It is not based on if you feel God's presence from day to day. It's not based on how much joy you feel. It's not based on if you feel blessed from one moment to the next. It's based on the historical reality of the empty tomb. When, G when Thomas was dealing with unbelief in John chapter 20, the Lord's response to him was this, see my hands and put your hand and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. When Thomas is battling unbelief, the Lord pointed him to the reality of the resurrection. When you start to doubt if the penalty of your sin has been paid, don't look inside your heart. Look to the empty tomb. If you begin to question if the power of sin has been conquered, remember, he is risen. Amen? Amen? The resurrection of the man Christ Jesus is necessary because it validates and authenticates that sin's penalty and power have been conquered once and for all. Without the resurrection, sin's penalty would still be unpaid, since power would still have hold over us, 
And through his death and resurrection, Jesus paid the penalty of sin and conquered the power of sin for all those who believe. And after his resurrection, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So if you're following along on your handouts, that takes us to point number two, the man Christ Jesus ascended. The man Christ Jesus ascended. We said earlier, our goal in reviewing the Apostles' Creed is to welcome the Lord's people to the Lord's table and to fence off the table from those who are not the Lord's people. So when we say, when we say this and then we use a creed as the standard, we are saying that these are essential truths that a person must believe in order to rightly participate in the Lord's Supper with us. That being so, it is imperative that you ask a question. What exactly does the Bible reveal about Christ's ascension? And is it, ne- and it, is it a necessary component of the faith? You guys ask wonderful questions, wonderful questions. The assertion that the man Christ Jesus ascended into heaven and sits enthroned at the right hand of God is found in too many passages to count. The most obvious passages are Luke 24, Luke 24, verses 51 through 53, Luke 24, 51 through 53. And the Bible says when he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Also in Acts Acts 1, verses 8 through 9. Acts 1, 8 through 9. The word of God says, He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. If you notice in both of these accounts, okay, there's another one. It's in Mark 16. I just don't want to fight with anybody because, you know, some people like think that that's whatever. I don't want to fight about it. Anyways, if you notice in both account in both these accounts, the the language that uh, the biblical authors use refer to Jesus being carried up or being lifted up. When we refer to Christ's ascension into heaven. It is important to understand that it is physical, but that significance goes beyond a mere physical ascent. So it's necessary for us to realize that the idea of Christ's ascension into heaven involves more than just physical movement, but it carries a deeper and more significant theological meaning. Because Christ's ascension marks the end of his earthly ministry and the beginning of his heavenly reign as king over everything. His ascension points to the reality of his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. If you got your Bibles, turn to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1 says this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is one of the most quoted verses in all of the New Testament. And I'm certain that you have another great question. I'm certain that you're asking yourself, what does the 110th Psalm have to do with Christ's ascension and exaltation in heaven? Everything is the answer. The, the Lord Jesus Christ, in one of his many confrontations with the Pharisees, he quotes the 110th Psalm and gives us this, this sanctified commentary on the 110th Psalm. In, in Matthew 22, uh, 42 through 46, the, the Bible says this. Uh, he asked the Pharisees, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any questions. So in this story, Jesus, he establishes David as the author of the psalm. He establishes the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And he establishes that the Messiah will be at Yahweh's right hand. This event is so important that it appears in all three synoptic gospels. It appears in Matthew 22, 41 through 46, which is what I just read. Mark 12, 35 through 37. Mark 12, 35 through 37. And Luke 20, 41 through 44. Luke 20, 41 through 44. Also, the writers of the New Testament cite this verse. It's the 110th Psalm, verse 1, in order to show that since Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, he is in fact seated at the right hand of God. The Lord also uses this verse in other passages of Scripture. In Mark chapter 14, when Jesus was standing before the high priest, all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes, in Mark 14, verse 61, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In Acts 2.33, Peter, in order to prove that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah, he quotes the 110th Psalm, verse 1, when he says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20, the Apostle Paul is praying for the church and says, According to his great might, God raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Romans 8, 34 says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, implying that we cannot be condemned because Jesus is at God's right hand and interceding for his bride. Amen? Both Jesus himself and the apostles apply this psalm, the 110th psalm, and all of its messianic implications to the man Christ Jesus. Look again at the 110th psalm. Look at it again. I'm in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. These are the first two verses of the 110th Psalm. And this Psalm sings about Yahweh and his chosen king. And we hear in the lyrics of this song that God makes two promises to his Messiah. Two promises. The first one is that he will sit at his right hand. And the second one is, is that he will make his enemies his footstool. So you got more questions. What does it mean to sit at the right hand of God? To, to be at the right hand of God is to be in a place of honor, to be in a place of authority and power. To be at the right hand of God is to be exalted, to be high and lifted up. To be at the right hand of God is to reign with supreme authority. What about making his enemy his footstool. More great questions. A footstool is a symbol of total victory. Yahweh is promising that the Lord will place his feet on the head of his defeated enemies. And he will rule even in the midst of those that oppose him. The mighty scepter in verse 2 represents the king's dominion, strength, and authority. 
It is Yahweh who is sending forth this authority from Zion. And even those who reject him and fight against him, he will rule over them in, in power and in might. All of this family echoes the same idea that Paul conveyed in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. God has ex highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Hallelujah. I want you to listen to what one theologian said about Psalm 110, verse 1. He says, anyone who has caught a glimpse of the heavenly splendor and sovereign might of Christ would do well to imitate the saints of ages past. It is only appropriate to worship him with deep reverence. He is your Lord. You are his and he is yours. However, you are not pals. He is your Lord and master. You are servant and disciple. He is infinitely above you. His throne holds sway over you for your present life and the one to come. And as king, he is to be honored. He is to be confessed. He is to be obeyed and he is to be worshiped, end quote. When Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, he, was, he sat down at the right hand of God and he did something else that is vitally important for the church. He did not leave his disciples or his church alone. His ascension secured the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Pentecost, Pastor Dr. John Prelove used to always say this, that Pentecost is the grand opening of the church. And Jesus Christ is the one that started it. In John 16, John, in Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 7, the Lord Jesus Christ makes the following amazing statement. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin righteousness and judgment the lord himself says the ascension is a advantage to his disciple his disciples and his in an advantage to us but you asking me why why is it an advantage because in that same chapter john 16 verses 13 through 14 john 16 verses 13 through 14 the lord gives us Three specific reasons why the ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit are such an advantage to the church. Reason number one, the Lord says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. Because of Christ's ascension, the spirit has come and he has throughout the course of the history of the church guided the church in truth while preserving the truthfulness of the gospel in order for us to be saved. Amen? Reason number two, he says in John chapter 16, verses 13 to 14, that he will declare to you the things that are to come. Because of Christ's ascension, the Spirit of God has in the scriptures revealed to his bride the future glories in Christ, which gives us hope in this present age. Amen? And the third reason you see in John chapter 16, verses 13 to 14, he says he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Because of Jesus' ascension, the Spirit has come to ensure that the church has the word of Christ for Christ's people. He has revealed himself to us in the Holy Spirit-inspired scripture. Your only access to Jesus is the Bible. And it is the Spirit of God who has ensured that you can hear about your salvation. Amen. If Christ does not ascend into heaven, the Spirit does not come, and we, you and I will not know Jesus. The 
ascension is critical and essential to our faith. If you take away the ascension, you don't have Christianity. Without Christ's ascension and consequent securing of the Holy Spirit, we would be without the conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment, all of which are essential to the spiritual health and well-being of the entire body and individual believers. Without the word of God to guide us, we would have no instructions by which to live, no truth to build our hope upon. And without the spirit, we have no gospel preserved in the Holy Scriptures, no record of what God has done to save his people, no good news to trust and believe in, and no salvation. The ascension is essential to our faith without the Holy Spirit. And the, we do not, if he does not come and the man Christ Jesus does not ascend, he is not seated at, seated at the right hand of God and he is not king. Family, we must distinguish between our confession of Christ's authority as king and God's exaltation of him as king. You understand the difference? So because he was obedient unto death, fulfilled all of the law, God raised him up and seated him at his right hand, and therefore he is king. Amen? He's not king because you confess him as king. He's king because God made him king. Jesus is king regardless of your acknowledgement. Our confession of Christ as Lord and king has no bearing on the reality of him being king. Yes, we should all confess him as king, but we didn't put the crown on his head. God put the crown on his head. God has set his king on his holy hill in Zion. And he has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, not us. Amen? So, the answer to the previous question that you asked is yes. Christ's ascension into heaven is a necessary component to the Christian faith. And it has theological meaning beyond just his physical movement into heaven. Amen? Christ's ascension marked the end of his earthly ministry and the beginning of his reign in heaven, pointing to the reality of his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. Christ is king of everything. He's, he's the head of the church, and he's king over all of the nations. The people that don't submit to that are just in rebellion. But nevertheless, he's king. Because the man Christ Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, he is king. So we've seen so far that the man Christ Jesus resurrected and ascended. And now we're on point number three. If you're following along on your handout, the man Christ Jesus will return. The man Christ Jesus will return. The man Christ Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. If you, like I said, if you're following along on the handout, again, we're on point number three. So the physical bodily resurrection and return of the man Christ Jesus is essential to the Christian faith. If anyone denies these, you are not a believer. When the disciples saw the Lord ascend into heaven, in Acts 1.11, the angel said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Physical, bodily return. Believers eagerly anticipate and yearn for this day. We eagerly anticipate and yearn for the day when Jesus, the incarnate son, will turn and return in his glorified body for all those who belong to him. Amen? 
Family, if you are in Christ, your citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his. You have received grace from God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And according to Titus 2.13, that grace has trained us to live in this world with a blessed hope, waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And family, you have died with him. And your life is hidden with God in Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen? The return of the man Christ Jesus is the source of greatest hope for believers in this sin-cursed world. But it is simultaneously the source of deepest terror and fear for unbelievers. So if you still got your Bibles open... We're still in Psalm 110, Psalm 110, verse 5. Psalm 110, verse 5, the Lord says the following. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. These last verses of the 110th Psalm transition from lyrics about our exalted king to lyrics about our returning warrior king. In verse 5 of this psalm, it reminds us once again that the Lord is at Yahweh's right hand. He is exalted. He is majestic. And he has all authority and all power but the emphasis on the rest of this psalm is on how he will cause fear and terror in the hearts of his enemies but bring joy to his people in verses 5 through 7 of that 110th psalm there are five assertions that are being made the first assertion is the king will shatter lesser kings in the day of his wrath the king will shatter lesser kings in the day of his wrath. The second assertion is he will execute judgment on the nations. He will execute judgment on the nations. The third assertion, he will fill the nations with dead bodies. He will fill the nations with dead bodies. The word is actually corpses, it says there. The fourth assertion is he will crush chiefs or that means leaders he will crush chiefs all across the entire world and then the fifth assertion is he will lift up his head meaning he will be victorious over all of them he will be victorious over all of them this part these five these last uh verses of the psalm verses five through seven echo revelation 6 16 through 17 which the Bible calls the great day of wrath of the Lamb. In that day, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the rocks and the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? We have in this psalm, what we have in this psalm is God is declaring both the majesty, the power, and the authority of his great king and Messiah, and it also declares the great day of his wrath. And the disposition of your heart towards the Lord will determine how you view his return on that great day. Believers will be full of joy the moment they see the man Christ Jesus coming out of the clouds. But unbelievers will be filled with terror and horror at his coming. Family, this contrast is not new. This is not a new contrast. This contrast of the coming day of the Lord has always been this way. 
1 Corinthians 1.18 says the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The coming of the kingdom of God in Christ's first advent was a sweet smelling aroma to some people and to others it was the stench of death. At the birth of the Messiah, wise men came from the east to worship him, but Herod and all of Jerusalem was troubled and responded by trying to assassinate the baby. When Simeon saw the Lord as an infant, he was filled with joy and he was, I could die now. I could die a happy man. He could die in peace. But before he did, he said this to Mary, Jesus' mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. In the prophets, we are reminded that God eventually judges Israel for their covenant disobedience, and he uses the Assyrians as the rod of his anger to judge and destroy them and to destroy the temple. But at the same time, he was working covenant graces. He, God uses the godless Assyrians to crush the nation of Israel. The Assyrians in turn, in turn sent the people of Israel into exile, outside of the promised land, outside of Jerusalem, and it is during Israel's time in exile that they established synagogues throughout the entire Mediterranean, which acted as launching pads for the apostles' missionaries' journeys and the spread of the gospel throughout the entire Gentile world. The contrast of God's judgment against unrighteousness and the promise of mercy for those who repent is not new. And at the cross, we see this final and ultimate contrast. The father sovereignly directs another godless nation, Rome, to take the true Israel outside of Jerusalem. And God, once again, by the hands of lawless men, pours out his covenant judgment on the true and greater Israel. But in doing so, he simultaneously brings in all the nations who are called by his name into his covenant graces. And it's at the cross we see the fullness of this contrast of judgment and mercy. We see the mercy of heaven and the wrath of hell. We see the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of men. And at the cross we see both the height of God's holiness and the depths of God's love. Unbel or listen to me, family. If you haven't been listening, listen to me right now. Okay, all of us, all of us, believer or unbeliever, you, we need to take heed to this. Okay, he is returning. If you are in Christ, we need to live our lives with a sense of urgency and an anticipation of his return. It is easy to get caught up in the cares and the concerns of this life and to forget that he is coming back. Pastors, we cannot get entangled in civilian pursuits. We have to preach, teach, and pray and guide the people of God as if the, sh the chief shepherd is coming back for his people. Amen? Amen? To the rest of us, if you are in Christ, Christ is coming. And when he returns, he will set everything right. He's coming with judgment and righteousness. So are you living in anticipation of that day? And if you are an unbeliever in here, come to Jesus. Come to Christ. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Come to Christ. Please listen to me. Listen to me. If you're in here today and you are, and you are an unbeliever, listen to me. The gospel never does nothing. The gospel never does nothing. You understand? Every time you hear the gospel, you're being changed one way or the other. Every time you hear the gospel, you are being changed one way or the other. You will never remain the same every time you hear God's word of salvation preached to you. You're either moving closer to God or you're moving further away from him. 
He, you are either, your heart is either softening toward him or your heart is hardening. And if you hear his voice today, do not run away from him. Come to Christ. He will not turn you away. He is your only hope of salvation. He is the only way sin can be defeated in your life. And he is the only way that record of debt can be canceled. Because he died and he resurrected and he's seated at the right hand of God and he makes intercession for his people. And if you are not one of his people, he's going to return, but he's not returning as a savior. He is not returning as a savior. There is no second chance. Philippians 2.9 says that every knee will bow. Believers will bow because they are his, he is their king. Unbelievers will bow because he will hit them with a rod of iron. If you do not know Jesus, come to him now. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart. Come to Jesus. He will not turn you away. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pray, God, that those people who are in here today who do not know you, God, we pray that they would come to you today, O oh Lord. That they would not harden their heart, God, that they would not reject you. God, you are their king. We pray, God, that you would save them, O oh Lord. Cause them, God, to bow to you and worship you. You are their only hope, O oh Lord. Help them believe that. And Lord, for the rest of us, God, I pray that we would live with a hopeful anticipation of your return, remembering that you are seated at the right hand of God and you have all authority, all power, and you intercede for us. Lord, we thank you for your word today. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.